Hello. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm good. How you been? Been pretty good. Just, you know. Collecting cactuses and tension boarding. Hanging out with my cactuses and my tension board. (laughs) (laughs) You have an incredible collection of succulents. Yeah, it's kind of out of control. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I have a lot. You have a cactus jungle. Definitely. I think it's my way of bringing nature to me. <laughs> no, it's incredible. I, lo- I love, I mean, I don't have any plants in the van. I don't know if they'd survive, but I've thought many times about getting a succulent. Of yeah, some kind. they're great. Yeah. They make a good van plant. Uh, my friend Michael Pang has succulents in his van that okay. he, travels or, he travels around with them. But if it gets too cold, you have to protect them from mm. frost. I have a heater now, so that'd probably work. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Do you, uh, do they have names? No, they don't have names. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they have names, like they, the types. Sure. No, that. that's not what I meant. I meant like, have you personalized them? Yeah. I have too many for that. I've got like 150 plus. Like, Damn. <laughs> uh, any recommendations for me if I were to get a van succulent? Oh, uh, what's really easy. Let's see. Like any succulent, just make sure you don't water it too much because okay. people are like, oh, I'm so bad at taking care of plants. But really, they end up overwatering their succulents. Huh. They like neglect. Okay. They like neglect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So, they're easy. <laughs> Is there a difference between a succulent and a cactus? Is one like a broader category of the other? Or <laughs> How does that work? A a cactus is a succulent, but not all succulents are cacti. Got it. That was exactly what I was looking for. Okay. (laughs) We can make a a Venn diagram. (laughs) Perfect. I'll expect to see that on your Instagram page by later today. (laughs) Well, it is really good to talk to you again. And you and I have been texting the last couple of weeks. Kind of, it was hard to decide what to talk about because there's so many topics that could easily turn into entire podcast conversations with you. Um, And we talked about a lot last time. So there's, you know, there's any number of directions to take this. But what I ended up doing, and I think you saw this, but I just ended up asking people on Instagram what to, what topics they want to hear about, what I should ask you about, specific questions. And I got a lot of stuff. So I think we'll just kind of turn this into a Natasha Barnes Q and A. Wow! And we'll fire. No. we'll see how far we get. Some of them are fun and quick, and then some of them are pretty involved and could easily be like a whole podcast. So we'll just kind of I don't know. We'll we'll see how far we get, and I'll kind of filter as we go. Okay, sounds good. Um, but yeah, the first thing, this is from Steve, and his comment was, the, the question was, what topic should I ask her about? And he just wrote, and he just wrote, absolutely anything. She's awesome. That was it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which Steve? Steve Beckel? No, a different Steve. Actually, oh, okay. uh, yeah, I'd have to look at Instagram, but gotcha, gotcha. I thought that would be a good one to start with. Um, nice. Max wanted to know, how has it been training exclusively on the tension board? It's been awesome, actually. Um, I really like it because it's not an angle that I would naturally go to at the climbing gym just because it's a little uh, harder for me to climb at that angle. 
What is it? 40 degrees? This minus 40. Yeah. Okay. Um, and usually I'll maybe only climb like one or two things or maybe some juggy stuff at that angle at the gym, just cause, um, before the pandemic, I hadn't been climbing as regularly. So that angle was like a little challenging, but I think it's the hardest angle in rock climbing. It's hard. Like when you um, get steeper than that, you get like heel hooks and toe hooks and tricks and stuff. And then if it's uh less steep, you can stand on your feet more. But I feel like that like 45, 40 degrees is like this in-between zone that's just damn hard. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and you can still get really small holds at that angle. Yeah. Like they don't have to be huge jugs. You can still hold on to like pretty small stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a challenging angle. I really like it. Um, I love the tension board because it's really forcing me to work on a lot of different things. Like at first I thought some of the holds were a little awkwardly shaped, but now I'm realizing like, Oh, this actually thinks this might be intentional. Like it's really forcing me to work on like some of my half crimping. Hmm. Um, I've had the same thought. So this is interesting. Yeah. I've had, I have to half crimp a lot of stuff, which is not my natural go-to. Like I want to close crimp or I want to be like maybe a little more open-handed and relaxed. And it kind of forces me into more of like an active half crimp, which I think is good because sometimes I get on holds like that when I'm climbing outdoors and I'm like, Oh, I never get a hold like this. I don't know how to hold it. Can you describe, can you describe that hold shape? Yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, so the jugs on the tension board are, they're not really jugs as like what we would normally think of as like a huge jug where it's like your whole hand goes in the jug. It's more of like a fingertip edge. So I think that the edge, the like lip of the, of a lot of the positive holds on the tension board are maybe like 20 mil or maybe 25 mil the biggest. Okay. And it's kind of a sharper lip. So it's not like a big, comfortable, round jug. It's like a little bit of a sharper lip. So it, it forces you to half crimp it. Like you, it's t- the shape of it doesn't, you, you wouldn't want to close crimp it, but you can't totally open your hand up because you have to kind of dig in with your first pad in a way that forces you to kind of half crimp. The okay. Hole, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I know, ex- I know what holds you're talking about now. So like when you get like sometimes you'll get into like a hold where you're you have to hold your hand like that or maybe it's like a slot or something where you can't like fully crimp it but you're mm. not like open handing it either. Yeah, that's oh. interesting because I've climbed on the tension board a little bit and I remember feeling critical of those holds too. Like these are weird. I don't like them. But I'm actually now that I'm thinking about it, I'm running into quite a lot of holds like that here in Waco. Yeah, Waco has a lot of them actually. Yeah, totally. Huh. Yeah. Waco has those. I've, I've, I've experienced them on a little bit of granite too. Um, so that it's making like me work patina. on that. Yeah, exactly. Um, or like Bishop with the patina, those kinds of things. So it's good for that. It's all, I'm also realizing that like I use a lot of legs on this board huh. because there's a lot of moves where like, I really have to drive my hips up or like drive through my feet to extend, to get to, holds like there's a lot of big moves on the board and it's and you don't really necessarily want to cut like you want to keep your tension on your feet but it's still a big move so i find myself driving with my legs a lot on the board okay have you been able to get outside at all do you and and how is it uh do you feel like it's translating well to outdoor climbing 
I have not been able. I I got um I got out like in the summer to like Mount Tam like locally, um, and that actually felt pretty good. Um, but I haven't gotten out recently at all. Okay. That was probably like months ago. So. <laughs> okay. Any thoughts on that? On as far as like how it might translate? Like, have you seen that with clients or anything? I kind of feel like I'm going to be a lot stronger when I go outside because, I mean, if I can climb hard stuff on the tension board, like outside is going to feel easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think. (laughs) I'm the same way. I think the board climbing is so hard. It's so hard. Like if I'm doing well on the board, I know I'm doing well, like in regular rock climbing. (laughs) (laughs) So it'll be interesting. I don't know when I'm going to get out, but... um, my problem is I don't have a car right now, so I am kind of stuck in Oakland. Okay. So I don't know when I'll get out, but it'll be fun when I do. Okay. Yeah. These are definitely going to be, uh, I, I somewhat categorize these, but they're going to be a little bit all over the place. So that's just how it's going to be. Okay. Sure. Um, next question is from Allison, and she wanted to know how to cycle lifting with an in-season training schedule. And this is something we talked about a little bit in our conversation um, when we talked over the summer, but, um, but maybe just some like general thoughts on, on making that shift from like a lifting cycle to in-season training. Yeah. So general thoughts, um, well, obviously it's going to depend on the person and their training experience and also like what their, their needs are, but generally someone's during like in season for climbing i'll i'll usually keep up the strength training like once a week at least uh maybe twice a week if it's spaced a certain way programming wise um but for doing it once a week i usually try to still have some kind of squat movement in there um for some people i will take that one out but for most on on generally i'm gonna have them still squatting once a week, um, doing some kind of pressing movement once a week, probably some kind of overhead press, um, or bench press depending. Um, and then I'll probably keep them deadlifting just cause that's a good strength exercise for climbers. It's good to kind of keep their, their strength up through the season. Um, okay. it's probably what I'll do. Um, and then if I'm doing more than that, it, it'll just kind of depend on like what the needs of the client are. Yeah, I, I noticed that you left out pulling. Are they getting enough pulling usually with their climbing in season? Yeah, you, yeah, usually with climbing. If somebody's like really struggling with that kind of strength, like if they're a newer climber or they just don't have a lot of upper body strength, then maybe we'll incorporate some kind of pulling exercise. Like, um, row. I like I really like dumbbell rows for climbers. Or um, I'm re- I really like the isometric lock offs for climbers. Two armed isometric lock offs. Um, weighted if they're strong enough to do that. Okay. Um, I, I usually do like a 90 degree or a 120 degree, which is like the first quarter of a pull-up. Okay. And those seem to work really well for people. Um, and a lot of people can do them. Like even if you can't do a bunch of pull-ups or weighted pull-ups, you can usually still do like some kind of lock-off. So Yeah. That's interesting. I had a pretty long conversation with Alex Johnson about exactly that for arm strength. She was working with Tyler Nelson and has been doing a lot of 90 degree and 120 degree lock offs. And she's yeah, seen a lot of benefit from that. 
Yeah, they're super great. Um, a lot of my clients are getting a ton of benefit out of those as well. Okay. Um, it's just like a little bit more climbing specific, like performance specific. So, you know, if someone's not during, like if someone's in an off season, like maybe we'll have them do pull-ups or weighted pull-ups. I still think those are like great exercises, but the isometric lock-offs are just like a little bit more specific to what you're going to be doing when you're climbing, you know? Okay. You're either locking off and reaching or locking off and clipping or, you mm. know, there's, there's always a moment where you're like in that isometric position for climbing. So it's just a good one for people. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like for most people, you would probably leave that out in season. You'd leave the pulling out of it. Um, how would you, how would you fit that around climbing? Like, do you like to combine that one day a week lift on a climbing day or on its own day? How do you think about that? My favorite way to do it is I'll generally schedule like a climbing day um, where they're just focused on climbing. And then like the following day, we'll do like a strength session. Okay. <clears throat> and then usually I'll follow that up with like a rest day and then kind of repeat that, that pattern. Um, for some people, they really like doing their strength training on the same day as climbing. And it's totally fine to do that too. Um, if you're in season, like obviously you want to prioritize your climbing so you would climb first and then do your strength training after okay um and a lot of people are worried about like their numbers and everything when they're strength training too like during season it's like we're probably not going to see like big strength increases numbers wise on your lifting during the season and we don't need to see that for you to be getting the benefit of it so mm. A lot of people are like, oh, but if I have a hard training session, you know, my pressing is going to suck or whatever. It's like, eh, I mean, it might not be as good as if we were in a building phase or something like an off-season program, but it doesn't matter. Like, as long as you're getting to working up to an appropriate intensity and getting the reps in, you're going to benefit from the training. Okay. And do you have a target intensity relative to max for the maintenance? Like in yeah, so sessions? I don't generally program people percentage-based wise okay. um, for a lot of reasons. Oh, um, we've talked about this, yeah. Yeah, so like we know from research that your strength levels can fluctuate day to day, and that's for a number of reasons. That can be sleep-related, diet, stress, uh, previous training, you know, your training beforehand, like if you did the climbing session and then you're going to your strength session, there's mm. a lot of reasons why your strength can fluctuate. Um, and we know your fatigue levels fluctuate daily. So because of that, your performance is also going to fluctuate. And having a system to accommodate that is super important. So I incorporate um, RPE-based training for my athletes. So RPE just stands for rating of perceived exertion, and it allows you to pick a weight that's going to be appropriate for how, based on how you're performing in that session. Okay. So, you know, just because you did, you know, X amount of weight last time doesn't mean you need to do that amount of weight or more the following session if it's not going to be there for you that day at the intensity that we're looking for. So... I'll usually prescribe something in somewhere between the RPE six and RPE eight range. Um, sometimes RPE nine, depending on the exercise and the athlete. Um, and what that means is, um, so to get like your RPE rating, we're just looking at 
reps in reserve. Okay. Um, so you can ask yourself, like, how many more reps did I have left in the tank? So if you're doing a bench press, you know, let's just say you work up to 150 pounds for a set of four. You can ask yourself, like, how many more reps did I have left in the tank there? Mm. And based on that information, you could get your RPE rating. So um, RPE 10 would be zero reps left in the tank, like maximal effort. Um, RPE 9 would be one rep left in the tank. RPE 8 would be two reps left in the tank. Um, and RPE 7 would be three. Uh, and then RPE 6 is like four, four okay. or five reps left in the tank. Um, and then I don't really program sub six just because that tends to still be kind of warm up weight for most people. Oh, okay. <clears throat> gotcha. Like they could have so done, done twice as many or more than, than right, what they did. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> somewhere in that range. So like, let's say I'll for like a really good example would be like, I'll say, okay, let's do a set of four on bench press and work up to an RPE eight on that. Um, so that would mean you had two more reps left in the tank. So basically you would go through your normal warm up routine. And as you're warming up, you'll probably get a pretty good idea of how you're feeling that day based on your warm ups. And then you can make some um, educated guesses on where to go weight wise that day for the exercise. Okay. So, yeah. <clears throat> Brock wanted to know what percentage of body weight should climbers be able to bench press? I don't think we have any evidence on that. <laughs> okay. So any number that I would give would just be like anecdotal. Um, and I've seen it all over the map for people huh. at, at all different like performance levels of climbing as well. Interesting. So um, it's hard to say because everybody's kind of genetic potential in terms of expressing strength is going to be a little bit different. So I can't just say like you need to be able to do your body weight for a set of five on bench press or you're not going to have good climbing outcomes or your risk of injury is going to go up or whatever it may be. Um, we don't have any, we haven't studied that. Hmm. Um, I think, I think um, power company climbing has some information on like stuff like hangboarding, um, pull-ups, push up like max push-ups and stuff like that they they've tested a bunch of climbers and i think their data also shows that people are all over the map on that as well okay so, like i've had double digit boulders who male and female who could could not bench press their body weight um i've also had it the other way around i've worked with climbers who are like benching two plates and maybe they only climb before <laughs> yeah so <laughs> a lot of that has to do with like previous training history your genetics yeah uh all of that stuff and so the number is not what we're worried about um i think across the board what we should be looking at what we should be worried about is like are you doing supplemental training outside of climbing mm. and are you pushing yourself to the right intensity and are you getting enough frequency and volume of that exercise okay the numbers a little bit less important like we want to see your numbers get better obviously mm. but comparing comparing them to somebody else's it's hard to do that well i'm curious with those two examples would you continue to work on pressing with both of those athletes 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially if the other athlete is still pretty easily making gains on a program. Like if I have a climber who's benching two plates that only climbs to be four. And that I'm would be like 225. Work. 225. Okay. I'm still going to work on it with them. It's not like there's no such thing as like too much strength for climbing. It's going to be relative to your body, right? So if that's his, if that climbers or her, he or she has been able to, or they have been able to work up to that, but they're still getting stronger and they're still going to be benefiting from the training. So yeah, hmm. I'm definitely going to keep training it. Okay. Um, if we're starting to get to a place where we're having to, significantly change the training program to squeeze out more gains and we're starting to like some climbers will get really fixated on the numbers and it's like yeah we could put you know we could put 50 pounds on your lift but you're gonna have to start training like a power lifter Mm. and that's not our goal right like you want to climb these routes that's your goal so do we really need to like continue modifying the training so that you can put more weight on the bar or do we just need to make sure that we're training at the right intensity and frequency to, for you to get the benefits from the strength training. Mm. So Jeremy wanted to know if you had any recommendations for maintaining shoulder mobility for climbers who lift weights. That's a good question. I, it's going to depend on uh, what your mobility looks like. And I think that you don't need a lot of uh, mobility for climbing or you don't need as much as people think. Um, So my client, my shoulders have gotten stiffer as a power lifter. Like I can't like reach around and like scratch my back (laughs) or my shoulders the way that I used to. Um, But in terms of like reaching overhead, reaching back, all of that, it's adequate enough for climbing. And I think a lot of people feel stiff in their shoulders or they've, they've been told that they've got range of motion deficits in their shoulders. And they're, they've been told that by maybe like a coach or a rehab professional who is measuring that against some arbitrary standard that isn't necessarily the right thing to be measuring people against, especially in a sport that's highly specialized. So Hmm. uh, for example, you know, in physical therapy, they'll tell you, and I know this because I do physical therapy, you're, you need to get 180 degrees of shoulder flexion in both shoulders for your um, overhead position to be considered good, like, quote, good. What does but that mean? So you can, you can stand with both arms straight above your head? That means, like, yeah, standing with your arms straight over your head without, like, arching your back or compensating in some way. Okay. But... That's not where everybody is, and that's not where a lot of climbers are, Um, but they can still climb really hard, and they're not noticing any um, difficulties reaching their arm overhead with climbing. Hmm. Um, And some of that is an adaptation to the sport of climbing, getting stiffer in that that direction. Um, It's not necessarily like a bad thing or something that we need to work to increase and we we also don't have any evidence that having more range of motion in your shoulders in that way is going to provide any benefit in terms of performance or injury risk reduction that's interesting that that is like so my like alarm bells in my head are going off it's so (laughs) counterintuitive and that's so counter to like everything that that we hear you know from climbing coaching so that's really interesting 
Yeah, so I would really be taking a look at, like, obviously this is going to be individualized. And yeah, there are people who don't have adequate range of motion in their shoulders. Most of the people that I've encountered that don't have that are post-surgical. Okay. Um, not They're not, you know, just the average person who's coming off the street that's climbing or or even someone who has like a shoulder injury. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to look at like, okay, do you have an, do you have adequate range of motion to do the things you want to do on the climbing wall? And if you do great, we don't need to change anything. Um, and in fact, changing things can be detrimental because it is an adaptation to the sport. And we've seen that in like, um, Coaches and physical therapists have fallen down that hole with baseball players before. Okay. Where, um, like, if you look at a baseball pitcher, they have significantly more external rotation. So reaching back, imagine like reaching back for the seatbelt mm. if you're um, if you're like the passenger in a car with your right so, hand. So like with your right hand. Okay. So yeah. That that kind of external rotation. Um, baseball pitchers, in particular have significant range of motion in that direction because they need to cock their arm back quickly and with that much range of motion in order to like um, cock their arm forward and throw a pitch really fast. And because of that, they have less internal rotation on that side. So a lot of physical therapists back in the day thought like, hey, we need to make this more normal. Like they've got this much going backwards. We need to make sure they have that much going forwards or they've got this much on this side and not that much on this side. So we need to make these sides even, but it turns out baseball and pitching in particular are asymmetrical sports. And by doing so, they actually increased the risk of injury for those pitchers. Wow. Because now these pitchers had access to range of motion that they weren't necessarily training and it can cause more instability in the shoulder. Hmm. Um, so when somebody has like a, an adaptation to the sport we don't necessarily want to change that because it's a positive adaptation it's a performance adaptation hmm. so that's a really long-winded way of saying like we would have to actually um determine if you had range of motion deficits that are affecting your climbing or if you just have the sensation of tightness in your shoulders hmm. um which a lot of people have and i think just training your shoulders and getting them stronger that sensation will go away interesting okay so <laughs> I don't have a blanket recommendation. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's um, fine. In my anecdotal experience, and I know I've talked to other coaches who are actually like have said the opposite, but in my experience, I actually encounter more climbers who are hyper mobile in their shoulders than like overly mobile. Huh. So most of the time I'm going to prescribe strength training anyway, because they <laughs> need it. <laughs> and because strength training is is like a mobility exercise um you know if you're worried about like chest opening or you know stretching your arms back you can do a wide grip bench press which is also going to strengthen your shoulders but hmm. it's going to increase your range of motion in that direction as well but in a way where we're we're training the muscles in the shoulder to tolerate that position so. I had a question from Tim, who I, I guess is one of your clients, and Tim is dealing with a shoulder injury. He had a torn rotator cuff, mm -hmm. and uh, I just thought of him because of your comment on you know post-surgery, getting people's mobility back. He wanted to know your thoughts on how to incorporate on-the-wall training while rehabbing an injury. 
Uh, it sounds like he's trying to get back into his regular climbing schedule and still do his rehab and it's kind of throwing him for a whirl. Right. Um, I mean, again, that's going to be a little bit specific to like what, what seems to be the problem? Is it a volume thing? Is it an intensity thing? Is it the angle of the wall? Is it the type of the moves that the type of moves that seem to be bothering it or not allowing you to get back into the climbing? Um, for a lot of people, it's not super easy to navigate that because I can't just be like, well, if you just stay under V2, you'll be fine. Because, you know, you could encounter a V2 that's like World Cup style with mm. a mantle in it and your shoulder's not going to tolerate that. Whereas you could get on a V6 that's, you know, super casual for your shoulder. Hmm. Um, so because climbing's just more variable, it requires a little bit more experimentation, a little bit more um tracking to see what the path is going to be for getting you back into climbing there's going to be some level of climbing that you can tolerate whether it's a volume thing like you know your sessions you have to be really short because that's all you can do or whether it's an intensity thing like we need to avoid climbing up to a certain grade that's closer to your limit um, and often it's a combination of things, the mm. volume as well as the intensity, as well as the style and potentially the angle of the wall that we're looking at. Hmm. So just takes a little bit of like thought and experimentation um, going into the gym and like starting off really easy and easing your way back into more volume and harder climbs and moves that, you know, specifically are going to be um, a little more difficult for your shoulders. Yeah, that, that was kind of a question that just popped into my mind is how do you, like when you are recovering from an injury and you know that there's a specific type of movement that aggravates it or a specific angle or whatever, um, how do you think about climbing around it and avoiding it versus, um, you know, trying to reintegrate it and expose yourself to it? Like what's the balance there, you think? Yeah, there's definitely going to be a balance um, and you're you're definitely going to want to determine like, is this a situation where I need to expose myself to this or is this an, a situation where I need to protect myself from this? And early on in like a rehab process, we're more in protect mode. Okay, doesn't mean we're not climbing. It just means that like, okay, you know, this kind of like Gaston undercling bothers your shoulder. We're not doing those for a little while mm. because we need to give your shoulder some time to heal. We need to give your shoulder some time to get stronger and adapt to the rehab that you're doing before we start testing it. Um, but then when it comes time to start testing it, which is usually after like a few weeks of rehab and also depending on the person's like symptoms, um, then we do want to expose like say a shoulder to that position in a graded way so okay. you know that could look that could look like finding um an easier climb that has that move where you know mm. where you can test it out or finding a move like that on a lower angle wall where you can keep more of your feet um more of the weight in your feet um that's where, you know, having like a home wall could be an advantage because you can set climbs like that or you can pick climbs like that. Mm. Whereas like if you're going to a gym, you're kind of just like limited to whatever's there. Or if you're just doing this outside, you kind of have to search around to find climbs like this. Um, 
but yeah, there's, there's always a way. And then, you know, eventually after you've given your shoulders and the tissues in your shoulders, some time to adapt, we do want to start exposing our shoulders to that stress again in a graded way. Um, and all, you know, again, it's going to depend on the situation and the person and their symptoms. Um, but there's always a way to do it. And I think a lot of the time people have this like zero to 60 mentality with it. Um, <laughs> Where like, for example, um, like when I work with people with finger injuries, you know, and it's time to like stress the finger, um, you know, I often will have people do a test to see what their finger is going to be able to tolerate on a hangboard. Um, if they can even tolerate hanging on a hangboard with body weight, what edges size they can, you know, tolerate hanging on or where we need to start. Basically, we're looking for a starting point. Um and oftentimes people will do the test and they'll report back and they'll say like, hey, I did the warm up, um, hung on the hangboard, that was okay. Worked up to body weight on a 20 mil edge, that felt fine. So I just went ahead and put 35 pounds on and hung on the edge and that was not okay. So I don't think my fingers can handle hanging on a hangboard. Hmm. But, or like even 50, I've had people say like they, they went from zero to 50. So, and then in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of increments between zero and 50 pounds that you could try. <laughs> Why don't we try five pounds? And like, let's see how that goes. Um, and then grade our exposure slowly from there. Um, so yeah, just finding a way, you know, like don't go to 50, go to five first. Let's see how that feels. <laughs> and then work up slowly from there. Okay. Sometimes it can be hard to tell. Like it's not, it sometimes aren't, it's not going to be a situation where, you're going into the gym and climbing and you're going to know right away. Sometimes it's like, we won't know until a couple of days later or the next day. So sometimes we're just testing the waters very slowly, especially if somebody seems to have a really um, sensitive, whatever body part we're trying to stress, you know? Mm. So I might be like, let's go try a v some V zeros. It's going to feel easy, but let's just see how your shoulder responds to that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So we're not overshooting. Yeah. There, there's the whole, I mean, this is more with training, but I think it applies here. There's the whole axiom of uh, better to undertrain by 5% than overtrain by one. Yeah, totally. You know? Totally. It's like if you're adding salt to a dish when you're cooking, you know, no. <laughs> I'm not going to put a tablespoon in. I'm going to put a little bit. I'm going to taste it. And then I'm going to keep adding until it gets to the like flavor that I want. You know? <laughs> oh, that's, that's exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> I like that. It's <laughs> a good one. Um, Brian wanted to know, he, he just wrote taping your fingers while recovering from an A2 strain. Yay or nay? It kind of depends. Again, oh my God, I'm going to say it depends. And the good news is I'm going to tell you what it depends on. I'm not just going to say it depends. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, so it depends. Um, if I have a feeling that somebody is kind of someone who uh, is leaning more on the side of wanting to expose their injury to stress, that's good. But if you're kind of a little bit of an overstoker and like you have a tendency to overdo it, Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that teaser of this week's follow-up. If you want full access to follow-ups, you can sign up for $5 a month on Patreon at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing, or you can go to thenuggetclimbing.com and click on the support the podcast button at the top, 
If you're on your smartphone, just tap those two little lines at the top of the page and you'll see the button in the drop down menu. $5 per month gets you access to all follow up calls, past and future. As long as you are a member, you'll have access to all of them. As you just heard in the teaser, I've been recording some follow up conversations with past guests on the show to talk about what they've been up to lately and to go even further into the weeds on a specific topic than we typically would on the podcast. Follow ups are 20 to 30 minutes in length, occasionally longer, and I will be releasing one every other week to make sure I always have plenty of podcast guests to follow up with. If you sign up for follow-up calls, what you are really doing is supporting the regular podcast and helping me continue to chase down interesting guests so I can pick their brains and bring you new nuggets every week. And by signing up on Patreon, you get some bonus content to look forward to as well. In addition to getting access to follow-ups, I will also let you know who's coming up on the show, and you can submit patron questions for upcoming guests, as you have undoubtedly heard in other episodes of the podcast. Five bucks per month. Think of it as buying me a beer at the local brewery after a long day of climbing. Whether or not you choose to sign up, thank you for listening, and feel free to share the podcast with your friends or leave a rating on your listening app. It truly helps. And I appreciate you for tuning in. I am very grateful for you guys. Much love to you all. We'll see you next time. Like we do it.